Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of more than 130 awesome interviews and listen on any podcast app or at the website aarecoveryinterviews.com. Every episode is unique, inspiring, engaging, and meaningful. Each story is a powerful testimonial of the recovery available to all in AA. And if you like what you hear, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Today is an encore episode of my interview with Preston D. from September 2021. Preston got sober in AA in September 2014. My 47th interview in this podcast series features Preston D., whom I first met when he got sober more than seven years ago. Since then, we've attended many of the same men's meetings, both in person and on Zoom. Though he moved from Houston to New York City to expand his career as a successful artist two years ago, we've stayed connected through online meetings and during his visits back home. As one of my younger guests, Preston has spent his 20s in recovery after a turbulent childhood marred by suicidal ideations and teenage years riddled with alcohol and drug addiction. The marijuana, booze, opioids, and cocaine coalesced into a fast-lane lifestyle and early entrepreneurial success with clothing and sneaker design. But his addictions soon torpedoed his achievements and ultimately took him down in a very short time. By age 19, Preston's rapid descent to the bottom was arrested by an intervention orchestrated by his longtime therapist. That led him into IOP treatment for his many addictions, punctuated by fits and starts, and lots of doubts about sobriety. When he finally got into AA in 2014, he was totally beaten by alcohol and drugs and ready to admit defeat. He started attending meetings and got a sponsor to help him thoroughly work through the steps. As AA became a more and more regular part of his life, it allowed Preston to pursue his dreams of being a working artist and led to his move to New York City. Tragically, over the past year, serious health issues punctuated by debilitating and chronic pain have pushed him to the very limits of sanity and sobriety. Thankfully, the lifelines he tied to the higher-powered center of his AA program have allowed him to hang on without slipping. Today, Preston's recuperation from chronic pain has been eased by his steady involvement in AA, including service work, sponsorship, and prayer. With a lot to look forward to, he continually demonstrates how a solid commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous can enrich the quality of life. At an age when many alcoholics were still deep in our cups, Preston's years in AA set a fine example of what is possible for other young people who are struggling to get sober. It's an awesome and inspiring story, and one which I think you'll enjoy listening to. So here he is from Brooklyn, New York, my fine friend and AA brother, Preston D. I'm Preston. I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. Hey, Preston. Good to see you today. Thanks for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I was so glad to see you in the meeting yesterday and to see you get your virtual seven-year chip. That's amazing. It is amazing, and it's even more amazing that I was able to celebrate it you know, one of the best Houston meetings while I'm sitting on my rooftop in Brooklyn looking at, you know, the Manhattan skyline. You know, that's crazy. That is crazy. How long have you been in Brooklyn now? It seems like you left just yesterday, but you've been there a while now, haven't you? 
yeah, I've been in New York uh, two years and almost exactly a month. And uh, I've been in Brooklyn for one year and almost exactly a month. Oh, that is so cool. Okay. Did you guys get affected by that flooding at all or anything? We did. What happened? Yeah, it was one, it was really scary, to be honest. That night, um, I had done a Zoom meeting. And so thank God I did that because I was like spiritually prepared for what was about to happen. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I heard a bunch of commotion outside. I went out and uh, there was just water everywhere. We live in the basement. Oh, no. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our, our super was trying to get it out. And uh, I'm an Eagle Scout uh-huh. and a member of AA. So my mind immediately goes to what can I do to help? Uh-huh. And um, only because I went to that meeting right before then, if I hadn't, then it would have been, you know, I'm going to die. And so, you know, thank God we were one of the only basement apartments that like didn't get flooded. Wow. Some idiot left his window open while he he left town and he left his window open in the basement and all the water was coming through his apartment. Anyway, I was bucketing water out of our basement hallway for a while that evening and, um, I just had to stay up late to make sure everything was okay. But I mean, we really lucked out because I have all, you know, this is my studio also. So I have all my art in here and um it was really really stressful so i'll bet it was did the water come underneath the door or did you get actual water in your apartment then no not ours some somehow you know if if i hadn't been bucketing it out there then uh, i think we would have gotten a little bit but uh yeah we really were lucked out on this one god has presented me enough challenges in the past year he's like okay i'll let you slide on this one Well, that's a good way to think of it. I didn't realize you were an Eagle Scout. That's kind of cool. So you were there to be of service and to help out in any way you could. Then you'd been bolstered by an AA meeting just before. Talk about putting two good things together for the greater good. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm not a, I'm not a great example of Eagle Scouting. Yeah, um, you know, I can barely tie a knot, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, someone's got to get the water out. So do things dry up after that? The neighborhood's still in a lot of disarray at this point. You know, New York is just like bad shit happens every day. You know, to everyone, that's just part of living here Uh and people move on, you know, they were up all night cleaning and then, you know, the next morning it's like nothing happened and everyone's on to the next thing. It's, it's strange. So you moved to New York just before your fifth birthday in AA? Correct. What was going on at that time that made it possible for you to go to New York at that point, uh, not only in your life, but in the period of sobriety that you have? Well, you know sobriety and recovery like allowed me to really tap into who I truly am and what I really want to do Mm -hmm. with, you know, this life that AA has given me and that is being an artist. Yeah. And, you know, I had dreaded having to move to New York for years. Really? You know, probably three years at that point, I just did not want to go because, you know, I like being comfortable but I had hit the glass ceiling in Houston for probably a year and a half, two years. I'd done everything I could do and I got everywhere I could possibly go from living there mm-hmm. without living in, in, in New York. And um, it got to the point where I was like, okay, it's uh, it's now or never, you know, I had gotten uncomfortable in a lot of areas in my you know personal life. It was just time to, to leave the nest and wow. uh, in both AA and family and um, my girlfriend, was applying to grad schools. And I'm like, Hey, you should apply to grad schools in New York. Now that's a real good excuse for both of us to be up there at the same time. Uh And so we moved August 11th of 2019 and my sobriety date, September 3rd. So 
you know, I celebrated my five-year anniversary half a decade. Up here, they say you get your marbles back at five years. I celebrated having lived here for, what, three weeks. It was very strange because I'm, you know, very, I have so many friends in Houston. I have such a great fellowship uh-huh. there that I still so grateful to be in touch with because of zoom and you know i go back every three months or so but yeah it was very weird celebrating with a bunch of people who i didn't know and i i got to feel like a newcomer all over again yeah i wanted to ask you about that what what did that feel like acclimating to aa in new york city after being in houston for so long so hard and it still is hard in what way there are a number of ways the first way is like just the, the practicality of the meetings, they're, they're, they're different. Uh-huh. They call them qualifications here. Honestly, we're probably the ones who do it wrong, right. <laughs> you know, because I, you know, moved down that way. But, um, but I hear this in, in everyone who moves, you know, it's just not the same wherever they moved to from where they got sober. And because I had been so grounded for five years, you know, which is a significant amount of time and I had some, that, that it made it even harder. Uh-huh. But, um, but yeah, just the practicality, the qualifications, um, you know, people leading for 15 to 25 minutes or so at the beginning, instead of having a topic and then you, you know, share on the qualification, um, you have to volunteer at most meetings, uh-huh. Uh, you know, so getting my physical hand up was like really difficult for mm-hmm. me because I felt ashamed and like, you know, the people who volunteered to share it, you know, the meetings I went to, that was like, this person might still be drunk, you know? So that was, you know, that took a lot of getting over. And there's just like that literal rejection of like you not getting your called on while there's like 20 people around you who have their hand up and you got to keep going up. And so like huh. in New York, like you have to really want to do something to do something. Mm-hmm. And that was just like one example in my life where it's like, okay, I really want to share right now. I'm going to, I'm going to have the confidence and put my hand up. So it's, it's taken me a while to like have the com- self-confidence to put my hand up. Cause I know I have quality recovery, but like, sometimes I just feel like there's that physical thing, you know? I get that. In fact, I remember back when I started going to meetings where they would call on you instead of volunteering. This was many, many years ago when I was going to my early meetings. They were pretty much all volunteer meetings. And I, I didn't know when I should share and when I shouldn't. Then I went started going to some men's meetings where they were non-volunteer meetings. And I remember telling my sponsor about it. And he said, well, when God wants you to share, you'll be called on. I thought, well, that's kind of cool, you know, so that must mean whenever I get called on, it's not my doing. It's not my my ego that's doing that. But then during COVID, I started to go to a lot of meetings online, especially those in, in your part of the country and other parts of the world where they are indeed raised hand meetings. And it felt kind of weird. So early on, I asked my sponsor about that. And he said, well, when you need to share, you'll either be called on or you'll find your hand going up. Mm. That kind of made it seem like I wasn't running things. I wasn't managing whether or not I'd get called on. If I needed to get called on, I'd be called on or my hand would go up. But there wasn't any of this ego like, I need to talk. I need everybody to hear what I have to say. How did you deal with that? You know, and there is some of that here, but it's like at the first meetings I was going to pre-COVID, there were like 150, 200 guys in these meetings and these men's meetings. So, you know, there would be, you know, 30 hands up at a time or something. And so it really was like, you know, the leader still had a you know very significant pull in like, you know, who's going to get called yeah. on. Now, now in these smaller men's meetings that I really go to now, it's like, if you put your hand up enough, like you'll get called on. Funny aside, like for on my seven years of sobriety, I went to a meeting. I kind of waited to get my hand up, you know, later in the meeting. Cause I'd already said, you know, I have seven years of sobriety. Uh-huh. 
been recognized for that. And, um, and, and the guy just wasn't calling on me. And at the very end of the meeting, you know, I had my hand up and the, the guy who, who led the meeting, you know, he was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. We just don't have enough time for you. And they closed the oh, meeting. No. I, didn't get a share <laughs> and I felt so fucking alone. And, you know, I just went home on the subway, like depressed, you know, like no one likes me. Uh, I miss my Houston uh-huh. people. You know, they should have at least let me share for like, you know, 30 seconds or something. But but that's just that's just New York AA sometimes. So I think that that example is like really encapsulates like there's a much more cold and distant yeah. here in, in fellowship and in and in how we speak about AA um, because people are busy and it requires like someone to really want to like hang out with you to like commit to going to fellowship. It's really hard to get anyone to do anything here because there's a million options going on. Yeah. And um, the recovery tends to be skew younger, you know, because people who live here tend to be younger, uh-huh. uh, you know, the old people who are older and have time in recovery, who have a family, they tend to like, you know, sometimes work in the city, but, you know, live in Connecticut or, or live outside of the city. Mm-hmm. So I was friends with a lot of older people when I first came into the rooms and uh, now it's been strange, like, to like, like have to have like a whole group of like young people as friends, and mm-hmm. um, and so that's been like one difficult thing to get adjusted to as well. There's a lot of really great young people with solid sobriety at the meetings I go mm. to, which is which is really great. And I finally feel like I have a fellowship. But uh, mm. you know, it takes time. It takes time showing up to the same meeting every single week. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's more competition for my time because, you know, it's New York. I'm here for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it's made me grow up, you know, in AA, in life, in so many ways. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it probably would have taken me a lot, a lot more time to, to, to get to where I am right now um, living somewhere else. So usually when we go through the kind of situations like you went through with not getting called on on your seventh birthday, the question is, so what lesson have I learned from that or what might my higher power be trying to tell me about myself that my reaction was as it was? Did you have that kind of feeling as you were riding on that subway? Like, is there a lesson in this or am I just, you know, going to feel sorry for myself? Yeah, of course. You know, the first response, you know, emotional response is often like, poor me. (laughs) Uh, And then the second is like, okay, like, what is, what does that mean? You know? And to me, it's like, you know, God just wants me to shut the hell up sometimes. And we can get into this in a bit, but like the first time dealing with chronic pain and sobriety with, uh, I've seen 10 dentists, doctors, neurologists, brain MRI, all this crazy stuff with my mouth. Yeah, I heard about that. And there was a period even like three and a half, four months ago where I couldn't talk. I couldn't walk. I couldn't move my head really at all. And, and, and it's like, okay, like it's time to listen. And so like, I'm very grateful to be like talking to you right Mm -hmm. now and like, not be like flinching from my nerve pain. And, you know, it's like there's huge success in that, but, but it kind of brought me back to that. It's like, okay, it's time to listen. And I feel like I do a pretty good job at listening. So you're one of the, uh, of a limited number of people who I've interviewed for this podcast series, who is on the younger end of things. I've interviewed a number of people well into their seventies and that sort of thing. But uh, how old were you when you first got sober? You know, I probably started trying to get sober when I was about 18. Uh-huh. You know, I tried to do it on my own, of course. 
Um, you know, I tried to cut out this, cut out that and just, you know, smoke at 420 and just drink with friends mm-hmm. and only drink gluten-free beer <laughs> right. and stop doing the cocaine and stop taking Xanax and no more opiates and, you know, just marijuana maintenance program. Uh-huh. And I, I was only able to make it like five days max, totally sober off everything. And then it would start with the alcohol or or the smoking weed. And then it would progress into, you know, what I was doing, like, you know, five to seven different drugs every day that I was addicted to individually. And, um, so I went to NA, uh, I went to two NA meetings when I was probably 19. Mm -hmm. Um, I had hit my bottom. I was at my bottom for a hot minute there. And, um, I went to, uh, I don't want to say the name of the meeting, but, uh, it was the same location where I went to my second AA meeting. Anyway, I just, you know, I sat down and I listened. I thought I had a problem with drugs. Uh, you know, I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. I didn't even know what the word alcoholic meant. I, I didn't know AA existed. I didn't know I could go to AA. Uh-huh. And, you know, I thought I had a problem with drugs and uh, I could drink and I could smoke like a normal, you know, 18, 19 year old college age kid. And, you know, they talked about shooting cocaine uh-huh. and hepatitis C. And those were my big two takeaways. And I was like, Number one, didn't know you could shoot cocaine. That sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> and number two, uh, what is hepatitis C and why does everybody in this room have it? You know, later I would find out, you know, you get it from, you know, injecting drugs, uh-huh. narcotics. And um, then I went to another NA meeting that same night. This was a Saturday. And it was a bunch of Christian bikers in Bel Air. And I was like, this is like very strange. <laughs> and um I sat at the table and I think they might've asked me to read something. And then these two guys in the back of the meeting, it was just them sitting back there. Everyone else was at the table. They started like getting into an altercation. What? And then one was like trying to get into this door and was having like these tremors or something. And then they started making out and then they got into a fist fight and the police had to be called and the cops showed up and they asked, and I just like, I got, I remember getting into my, I was driving my dad's car at the time because I'd wrecked my other uh-huh. car. And I remember getting in there, sitting down, you know, and texting a friend like, you know, something along the lines of like, no, I've got this. And thinking to myself, I'm going to stay sober on my own because I'm never going to go back to anything <laughs> like that. So that was my first introduction to 12-step recovery, which, uh, you know, is hilarious in the uh, – in the rear view, but it was really scary at the time because I was like, what do I do? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the biggest risks is when somebody goes to their first meeting and something like that happens. I've only heard of that happening a handful of times to people I know. Most of the time, the warm fuzzies that people get from their first or second meeting is enough to tide them over. But to go into a meeting and have a fist fight and strange behaviors and cops called, that's enough to turn someone away from the program for good, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, it only lasted, you know, six months before I was, you know, back into a 12-step room. Yeah. And, you know, the, the the one cool thing, one New York comparison is like the NA here is like, is really cool. Um, it's just a different thing up here in a way. Like, I don't know, like a lot of young people like will only do NA up here. Mm-hmm. And I see it also in Los Angeles, like they won't do AA. I, I don't know what it is, but just one little regional 12-step, 12-step program difference. Yeah, I can imagine. So going back a ways, let's look back to see how did you end up at the point where you knew you had a problem and you knew you had to stop? Where did all that start? What was what was your what was your upbringing like or your family of origin that might have predestined you to AA and NA in later years? Yeah, only child. My mom really wanted to have me, you know, mm-hmm. they had some pregnancy complications 
friends. And, you know, so I was like a really, really desired baby. You know, she worked really hard to have mm-hmm. me. I uh, grew up in Houston and yeah, I got I tested into this prep school, St. John's mm-hmm. uh, when I was like four. I went to like Montessori school before then. I remember drawing in Montessori school and like being really bad at drawing and like, funny that I'm an artist now, (laughs) but, um, you know, that's one like very early memory, Uh um, drawing all these like monster scenes and stuff and just feeling like I was terrible at it. Uh Anyway, I I was probably four when I tested in the St. John's and I was one of like, like literally a handful, like five kids who got in that weren't legacy, meaning like their parents had, you know, gone before Mm -hmm. and they, you know, had a preemptive slot. And so like, that was pretty big. And so I started at St. John's when I was in kindergarten and I I went all the way through 12th grade. So I was there for 13 years. First early memories of like, you know, growing up is like just being like, like a weird kid. Like it didn't really necessarily fit into the traditional, like being good at sports mm-hmm. as a young kid. You know, I played, played everything, you know, my parents, you know, tried to put me in everything and, you know, tested off the waters. So I played basketball and I was I just progressively got worse at basketball <laughs> um, over the years. God was trying to tell me something. Anyway, I, I, you know, painted micro like little like figurines and mm-hmm. stuff. So I played video games uh, overall, like pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first like signs of like my alcoholism, I think showing up were like around fifth, sixth middle school puberty mm-hmm. age where I was like, I was chubbier as a kid that my, my parents had to take me to the do- doctor and uh, they thought I had childhood diabetes, but I was just a chubby, chubby kid. And so, you know, that's like the image of that. I had a bowl cut because it was like the early 2000s, late 90s. Um, I think that is child abuse to give your kid a bowl cut, but uh, it was cute, I guess. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, I was chubby too until I hit probably junior high and early high school when I finally got through that. But I remember having to compensate for that. I was kind of like the class clown. I acted out a lot and it was the only way I could get any attention or any acceptance from the people around me because I wasn't getting it at home. The only place I could get it would be at school. And the only way I was able to get it was by being the cut up, the the class, literally the class clown. And I remember I never had a report card that didn't say Howard does not know how to self-control himself, you know, only because I wanted to be liked. What what did you do to compensate? Did you have to compensate in any way? No, I didn't. I, I didn't compensate. I was just always so sensitive. You know, part of that being an only child, spoiled. You know, getting whatever I want. But and then it's like I'm just so sensitive to everything physical, everything mm-hmm. emotional. Like you know, I just always remember being so sensitive. And that you know, drugs and alcohol were like later on, like turned to like number one, be a numbing agent in a way, and also like I could control how I felt. Um, so I thought, and so, so that would play on later into my alcoholism, but, uh, but yeah, like fifth, sixth, seventh grade, chubby, you know, not, didn't, didn't, wasn't good at sports. Like, wasn't like, you know, friends with all the girls. I always felt like I didn't fit in because, you know, partially like I didn't fit in, like my parents didn't hang out with, you know, the cool kids, parents. And, you know, I would go over to these swim parties at these people's houses. And it was like, you know, they had a tennis court and a pool in their backyard. And I was like, oh my God, we were like, you know, on the brink of like, you know, death, like we were so poor. And, <laughs> um, you know, but that, I mean, that's literally what I thought. I mean, that's all I knew as a kid is uh, this is where we went to the pool parties. I always felt like fat and, you know, I wanted to wear a swim shirt and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just like uncomfortable to to take, you know, take my shirt. You know, that was just me as a, as a little kid. So, yeah. And then, th- then really the alcoholism, like, 
really started to set in like seventh, eighth grade. I got really depressed when I was in eighth grade. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. I started seeing the signs of emotional abuse at home, you know, was getting bad grades. And um, I remember sitting in one of my history classes and like writing poetry because I was suicidal. I mean, I had a plan to kill myself when I was in eighth grade. You know, it's just like 12 years old. And, you know, on externally, like, why would I feel this way? Right. Um, it's crazy. And I would like write poems and I would put them on Facebook, which is a terrible idea as a 12 year old. You know, I would get made fun of. I started a YouTube channel when I was in eighth grade about my love for sneakers. Uh-huh. You know, I would get bullied and harassed online and in person. And then all the kids at the other schools around us like found out and like would make fun of me. But, you know, we had to wear a uniform. So my version of expressing myself was wearing cool shoes, you know, and just a few years later, like that would become like my business. And you know, that's like what I did. And it would become cool. And now the sneaker culture is like this big thing and everyone wears cool shoes. Mm -hmm. But back then it was like, you know, get called a lot of slur words and like choice activity. And, uh, you know, and already like I felt like I didn't belong and and just doing what what made me happy, like isolated me even further. Uh So I got into therapy when I was in eighth grade. They tried to put me on antidepressants as a 12-year-old. My mom was like, no way. And I got uh, a naturopath. So I started homeopathic medicine. So like fish oil. And Mm -hmm. I've been on like fish oils since since then for for antidepressive purposes. And it's like, you know, it changed my life. Therapy and quote unquote medication, but really it was supplements, you know, natural stuff. Wow. And so ninth grade, I was still in therapy, still depressed, you know, failing biology. But like by 10th grade, like I started having friends and um, I started to feel like I kind of fit in a little bit. Mm-hmm. I had kept the YouTube channel going on. There was some success. I became a partner with Google. So I had ads on my videos. Oh, I was starting cool. to make money from it. Yeah. I was doing these, these trade shows. I had all these friends now. Uh-huh. And that's when like alcohol kind of started to enter the picture, you know, 14, 15, really. Because my friends started to have licenses when they were 16. And uh, that's when we started to begin to get into trouble. So you started drinking more as an outgrowth of what was going on with you in the activities that you were engaged with those folks for social reasons and started drinking. It wasn't necessarily to deal with the depression or or was that all part of it? So the, you know, I, I would listen to this song by this artist named Kid Cudi. The song is Man on the Moon. And, and the chorus in it is like, you know, basically saying like, I'll be OK. I have a blunt and a brew. You know, a blunt being, you know, a, you know, basically like a joint that you roll with like tobacco leaf on the outside with the wrapper smoke. Right. And so that would kind of be, be, become my MO by, by 15, 16. No, I didn't get involved in drinking through, you know, my sneaker friends and, and I was interning at like this sneaker store and stuff. I didn't get into drinking through them really, mm. but I started, you know, my, my friends at St. John's, you know, like buy a bottle of gray goose, you know, and like, you know, we had no idea what we were doing uh-huh. and uh, get drunk on the weekends or something along those lines. But the smoking weed, you know, I would buy like a pre-rolled joint from the manager at the sneaker store where I worked with. Mm-hmm. He actually was the guy who bought me some gray goose once and, you mm-hmm. know, met up mm-hmm. like a sketchy drug deal, mm-hmm. you know, to buy up. And, you know, it's like so expensive for your gray goose, but yeah, I had no idea what we we're doing. And it was fun, you know, it was fun at first. I remember the first time I got drunk, I was probably 15 or 16 at this kid's house and we were drinking vodka and Bud Light and eating Cheetos and salsa. Bad combination. I mean, I just got blackout drunk. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I remember being on a swing demanding that my friends take me to this girl's house. And then I was in the front yard puking. My friend was holding my head up. I didn't have long hair at the time. And all my friends had driven off and left me. Just me and the <laughs> kids whose house it was. I was just passed out on the front thrown up. And they finally convinced someone to come back and get me. And that was the first time I, I, I got drunk. Did you black out? Yes. So what you know about that is from other people, not from what you remember. Exactly. Well, I, I remember throwing up in the front. I remember being on the swing, but I don't remember anything else. So. so how did you feel after that? Were you a little bit apprehensive to do it again or were you anxious to do it again? Yeah, I was quite turned off by alcohol. Really? Um, my, you know, my, my dad or my mom, neither were drinkers. Uh -huh. um, you know, I come to find out later that my mom's dad died of alcoholism, that and, and it, you know, my dad had a preference for something else. So, yeah, I was turned off by alcohol um, because I'd gotten sick. And then I you know, bought a pre-rolled joint from the guy who got the bottle of Grey Goose from mm -hmm. and uh, at that same kid's house. And the funny thing is, like, that kid was, like, such a good kid. It's, like, super nerdy. Like, I guess his parents would let him, like, be at the house alone at, you know, 15, 16 because he was such a good kid. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, like, not even really friends right. and still aren't. But yeah. for some reason, the first time I got really drunk was at his house. And the first time I, I smoked weed, got, got actually stoned was at his house. Mm -hmm. I think, like, spring break of sophomore year, my friends and I smoked weed for the first time. Um, I was listening a lot of, to this rapper Wiz Khalifa at the time, like, and, and I was wearing my cargo camo shorts and mm -hmm. weed huff socks and Converse Chuck Taylors, which was like the stoner uniform, but I didn't even ever smoke weed before then. <laughs> and um, I had both of my asthma inhalers in my pockets. Oh, I've had no. asthma my whole life oh, and no. I was prepared, you know, they pass it around and I didn't even get high. Really? But I remember feeling like, these are my people like this is I have my people I have my tribe I feel like I fit in uh -huh. and I remember going back and like hanging out at my friend's house and like and he had like a hot tub and like we were just hanging out in this hot tub and it was like oh, I'm so high and I was just like I'm not high at all but I'm pretending I am because I you know I've like these are my people and then at that kid's house where I got drunk at we went out in the backyard I had a big joint uh -huh. and I remember halfway through the joint all my other friends, they were like, oh my God, I'm so stoned right now. I'm good. And I was like, well, I paid for this damn thing. So I finished the second half by myself as they waited for me. Uh -huh. That is just a testament to my my addiction. To me, that's like really when like, okay, like I'm a drug addict from then on out. And um, Were you somewhat perplexed by that though? I mean, you, all your friends around you are getting stoned on half a joint and halfway through that, you're not stoned. You have to finish the whole thing. Did you feel stoned at that point? Yeah. I mean, I was high as hell. But I was like, I, I paid for this. I'm finishing it. Okay. And, you know, really what it is, is my alcoholism. Like, like, I won't leave a plate of food. Like, there won't be any extra food on the plate unless I'm so physically ill. Like, I finish everything. That is who I am. Uh huh. And is it the desire for more or just the desire to finish what you got? I don't know, Howard. It's, <laughs> it's too deep down inside to really oh, recognize. Oh, but, uh <laughs> You know, my girlfriend, she's the normie and she'll look at me and she's like, you know, you don't have to, you know, eat everything right in front of you that you got out for yourself. Or, you know, you don't have to drink that entire bottle of water right now. You know, I operate in an alcoholic perspective, a man of extremes. Um, 
you know, to this day. Yeah, most of us are too. I mean, uh, I think if we don't express it in one way, we do in another. And when we get sober, there's a part of us, the addiction that still survives and lives on within us, looks for other ways to manifest. Yeah, I mean, it could be binge watching shows. It could be eating. It could be driving fast. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways it, it can manifest. Making art. Making <laughs> art. And, and the thing is, especially when you're talking about things that are productive, like working or artistic pursuits or music or that sort of thing. Most people around you, they don't see the addiction part of it. All they see is the outcome of that addiction. Yes. And that's why I think being a functional alcoholic or a functional drug addict makes it even more difficult to finally get sober. What was your experience with that as you were continuing to drink and and use drugs through high school? Were you still getting good grades? Were you getting along all right socially? What was that like in your later years in high school? Yeah, you know, alcohol and drugs worked really well for me at first. I was the highest functioning I'd ever been. I was very successful in school. I was doing well. I got a good grade on the ACT. Uh-huh. You know, I my dream was to go to Harvard, you know, and what a misplaced uh, expectation or dream, really. Uh-huh. Um, but really what it was is to prove everyone wrong and to prove everyone that I'm worth something. That's really what that dream was. Later on, I would actually get waitlisted at Harvard. And so like that was like a huge success for me. My wow. interviews went well, like they believed in me. You know, they saw what I was doing outside of school with my businesses uh-huh. and uh they were like, okay, this kid's on to something, but you know, it was not the right fit. Yeah. And I, I'm grateful I didn't end up, to, you know, it would come full circle. I, I recently did a fashion collaboration with this student run magazine at Harvard uh-huh. and anyway, and, and I got to tell my story in there. So that was really cool, but that is cool. But yeah. I was highly functioning. I had girlfriends uh-huh. and you know, I was partying. I was, I, I was popular in school finally, mm-hmm. but you know, for my identity, which was like Mr. Party, I was well-dressed, mm-hmm. you know, I was very fashionable at the time. And, um, you know, I was hanging out with rappers on the weekends. I would style rappers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like people at my school were just like, what the hell are you doing, Preston? You know, mm-hmm. like, and I was like, well, you made fun of me, you know, just a few years ago for doing this. And, uh, <laughs> and now, you know, you just like want to be a part of it in many <laughs> capacity. And now it's like, you know, too bad. And so, you wow. know, it was a lot of fun. I was so burnt out academically. Um, and I still am today, you know, I, I'm grateful for going there. I've made a lot of great connections and got to be around a lot of great people, but, um, it definitely made me rebel in, in many ways. And, and yeah, you know, I just started adding more and more drugs to the mix. I found hydrocodone from the old prescription of my mother's dental surgery uh-huh. and, uh, loved that immediately. Um, uh, I found Adderall through, um, you know, having to do the SATs and ACTs, um, the first yeah. time I took it was right before the SAT. And I remember, you know, it didn't really help me do anything in the exam, but I really like how it made me feel. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing that recreationally. And then, you know, probably around 18 or so, I found cocaine and that really ramped mm-hmm. up my drinking. I, I would drink, you know, sometimes, but, uh, you know, it was more uh-huh. at parties. And then, you know, the cocaine really just like made me fall in love with with alcohol and i was a heineken drinker and uh and and vodka i kept a bottle of vodka in my trunk of my car senior year of high school i called it my trunk taka you know plastic container of taka in the summer you know in the houston heat just like all of the carcinogens (laughs) that must be in there because the alcohol must erode some of that cheap plastic and I would pour, I would get a glass of orange juice or something from the cafeteria. I'd walk it back to my car. I'd pour myself a drink and I'd go to my girlfriend's house and smoke cigarettes. And I'd smoke cigarettes before school. And I would smoke weed in my bathroom while my mom was at Jazzercise. And she'd come back and be like, it smells like weed in here. And I'm like, 
what are you talking? I mean, like, I thought I was getting away with it, you know? <laughs> and um, I started using with my dad when I was about 16 after I had a bad mescaline trip that ended up, they thought I was just high on weed and I had to give them my stash. And turns out me and my dad uh, had a, a bonding activity we, <laughs> we found out about. And so that really fucked up my family life completely and my relationship with my dad. And, uh, you know, it was really fun for, for a number of years. I mean, like, you know, cause I was the house to go to, you know, if you want to go get high after school, you know, your dad was okay with that. Cause he's one of us, you know, we'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book. Thirty original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. You'd said he had been sick. Was his drug usage as a response to his ailments or was that something he was already doing when he got the cancer? It was not medically, you know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And there's definitely, you know, some benefits to that for, for, you know, chronic illnesses and stuff. I've actually been on CBD for my chronic Mm -hmm. pain and it was something I was very, you know, I'm no way in hell am I going to touch that. Yeah. But after lots of conversations with people in AA, my sponsor and, and, and medical professionals, like, it's a lot better than being on hydrocodone every day, but, but yeah, not, not medically, you know, he is, he's one of us. Um, but really with weed, did he ever attempt to stop? You say he's one of us. Yeah. We got sober together, you know, but he never, he never did the program. Uh, you know, we counted days, you know, while I was in treatment together and, um, that is a, a whole, whole other rabbit hole, but, uh, no, he's, uh, not been able to get sober and safe and just unwilling to uh, work this program, unfortunately. And, you know, I see that a lot with a lot, you know, people who just smoke weed because it's like, it's not destroying your life. You know, you, you can't see it necessarily like with alcohol or opiates or cocaine. Well, I always used to, whenever it was, I, cause I was a daily pot smoker for years and years. I mean, every single day. And I remember thinking that, uh, and I've said this before on the podcast that I always felt like marijuana sharpened me up and alcohol sloppied me up. And, and it was, it was kind of true, but then I found if I d- did them both together, uh, I kind of hit a normal <laughs> level. Which is crazy because weed is a depressant also. Yeah, it is. But, you know, with the THC, that makes you feel a little, a little up for a little bit. But. Yeah, it gives you a little, little bit of euphoria. So all of this is at the tail end of high school for you then, huh? Yes. And, um, it was really fun, you know, it was really fun. And then, you know, summer after senior year, you know, that was a lot of fun. And then uh-huh. I didn't get into Harvard. So I went to a school in Dallas, SMU, which was like mm-hmm. one of my safety schools. And uh, right. I didn't realize how much of a drug addict and alcoholic I was until I got there because I didn't have any of my dealers. You know, I didn't have, you know, me and my dad, you know, weren't, you know, splitting the the weed bill. I, I was just lost. You know, I was like a 
deer in headlights. Like how the hell am I supposed to like eat and like function? Like I was so used to like all of my time and energy being devoted to like getting high and getting drunk and getting drugs. And uh-huh. like, how do I add life into my alcoholism and drug addiction? And my first roommate was a kleptomaniac with a severe spice addiction. He would come home from class and smoke spice until his eyes would bleed and he would have seizures in the middle of the floor and he would steal shit from me. And so I moved out and a few days after moving out, the police raided our room. So perfect timing on that end. I moved into the Christian fraternities. And so what a, you know, antithesis to the first roommate. (laughs) And uh, let's just say that didn't work out either. And so I basically ended up living at this hotel across the street from the dorms. Uh And um, it brought me back to like the eighth grade days where I was like suicidal. You know, I was like, I was ready to kill myself. And, And I got to that same place. But now I had added drugs and alcohol to the mix. I, uh, you know, was severely addicted to Clonopin at the time because I couldn't find Xanax. I had bought every single Clonopin from the dealer who was, you know, down the street. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get my hands on the other substances I was addicted to as frequently as I would want. I was doing Adderall, hydrocodone, uh, other opiates, um, uh, weed, uh, cocaine, like Molly and stuff, the MDMA. like Along with the alcohol too, huh? Every day, every day. I mean, I was just a complete nightmare mess. Uh, and so, you know, cool thing is, you know, eight years after I was at, staying at that hotel, uh, this past July, I was able to go back to Dallas to stay at that exact same hotel. And I had an art exhibition in Dallas with my art mentor. And so, like, that's the power of recovery. And, um, uh-huh. you know, I got to go stand on that roof and I, I, I got a photo of me wearing this T-shirt on the back. It says Freedom. And I was looking at that dorm where I, where I lived in, you know, eight years prior uh-huh. in this completely different position, like having this show that got reviewed in the Dallas morning news. And like, I have a life, you know, that I wanted back then, you know, I thought yeah. I had to have drugs and alcohol to be creative. I thought I had, had to have drugs and alcohol to like be who I am, uh-huh. you know, that was the furthest from the truth. Um, so, you know, that was a really great recovery full circle moment as it relates to my time in Dallas. Yeah, what a great turnaround, too. I mean, to be able to position yourself for such a stark perspective of what it was like and what it's like now. So you were at SMU. Did you end up graduating? Let's just say it was a very expensive three weeks. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they don't let you get away. They don't let you pay week by week. You know, you got to pay for half a semester at a time. No, I, w- I probably stayed up there for five weeks. I mean, six weeks in my mind, it was an eternity because I was so miserable, but it really, really was like maybe a month and a half, two months max because the semester is what, three, three and a half months. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, it was a quick turnaround. I came back to Houston. Mm-hmm. I was convinced that I was an alcoholic, you know, my alcohol and drug use was because I wasn't doing what I loved, which was at the time fashion design. And so I enrolled in the Houston community college fashion design program, mm-hmm which we have, they have a fashion design building for Houston Community College in Midtown. And uh, I started going there. Mm -hmm. The doorman at the building turned out to be none other than Dwayne. I saw him when I came to Holy Name one of the first times. And I was like, whole, you know, that was another full circle moment. It's like, I know that guy. Yeah. He works a strong program too. And he saw me in my bottom. You know, coming into wow. class every day, you know, he would always wear cool sneakers and I was always wearing cool sneakers. So we, you know, we just say hi to each other uh-huh. anyway, you know, God moment, right? God moment. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, you know, I was doing what I love, but you know, it's impossible to, you know, just do the simple math that requires to cut a pattern or sew. you know, you have to have steady hands to sew. 
And, yeah. you know, I was so effed up all the time. I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do the work. And so that lasted, you know, probably, you know, five weeks or so. As you were sitting there trying to do the math and with unsteady hands, did you attribute that to something else? Or were you acutely aware that that was the drugs and alcohol's effect on you at that point? I, I was acutely aware because like the drugs and alcohol really ramped up when I moved back to Houston because uh -huh. I had been away from my, my dealers and suppliers and friends, quote unquote. And, you know, all the people who were left in Houston were the kids who uh -huh. didn't go to college or were taking a year off or had no intentions of like, you know, ever, you know, doing anything with their lives except mm -hmm. using and drinking. And I was like, OK, like my people are here. And so it really, uh -huh. really limited the scope of who I was associating <laughs> myself with and the drugs and alcohol. I mean, they just got totally out of control. You know, that's really when I started doing my my mixture every single day. Yeah, it got really, really bad really quickly. So what, you were what, about 19, 20 years old by this point? Yeah, 18, 19. Okay, so you're trying to do this thing at the community college. You've ramped up your drug and alcohol use. What were the next months or and or uh, the period of time between then and when you finally hit your bottom? What were those weeks and months like? So, you know, I was hanging out with my, my delinquent friends, man. Like, you know, mm -hmm. they start started robbing my drug dealers. And, uh, you know, I was just in such a blackout the entire time. Like the family, like life at home was terrible because of my relationship mm -hmm. with my father and, you know, just pinning ourselves against my mother because we were both, mm -hmm. you know, using together. And I mean, things got really, really bad. Lots of drugs and alcohol every day. Um, I stole a Lamborghini with my, one of my oxycodone dealers, what we call Roxy's. Um, you know, like that was one, one funny little example of, <laughs> of, of what my life looked like. I would ride around in my car with a box full of sneakers because I, I was running out of money. I didn't have any more money to buy drugs and alcohol with. So I would try and trade sneakers to my dealers. I would try and sell the clothes off my body because I had these like designer pieces that I'd bought in high school. I remember trying to sell this pair of like $900 jeans, which is crazy that they exist. But like, I remember uh -huh. trying to trade them for like a gram of Coke. I was so desperate. And my friend was my, my cocaine dealer at the time. We had been friends in high school and he, you know, he was, he, he said no. And he, event he cut me off. I, I would travel around with a bucket of change. Uh, and I would pay for, I would do the math and it was $60 for a gram. I would be like, okay, let me get $5 and 14 cents worth of Coke. And that's 0 0.1023 grams. And then I would ask oh him God. for the dollar bill so I could snort it. And so that's kind of like what the, the, the end of my alcoholism looked like. I, I would be in a blackout by the end of the night. Uh, and uh, I, I would go to Whataburger and Taco Bell at the same time and mm -hmm. uh, bring them back to my room. And I would hole up in my room. I would like board up the door. And I was sleeping with a big knife next to my bed in my parents' home. Wow. And, and I had an airsoft pistol. I painted the tip black because I was so paranoid, you know, with all of my, the drug dealers and all the people I was getting involved with and all the sketchy mm -hmm. shit that was going down. And yeah, I would eat that Taco Bell and Whataburger in my bed and pass out. And, um, I was like a fat meth head, like my skin, like look like the, the images of the, uh -huh. you know, the meth head posters they show you, but I was like uh -huh. obese. Like I had a beer belly and, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was not a pretty sight. And then, you know, that was the fall. And, and then all the kids that had gone to school, all my friends came back for the summer and Preston was in a very, very different position than he was a year ago. And, uh, I remember 
busting into my friend's, um, you know, like garage apartment and knocking over this bottle of cough syrup. And supposedly, I don't, I, I don't know if this is true, but snorting the cough syrup off up off the carpet because oh, I, I, you know, and that's that's the person they came home to. Yes, you were a real mess for those people to see when they got home. Real mess. Did they hang with you at that point throughout that summer, or were you just with your college dropout or delayed college guys? Uh, who were you hanging with at that point? You know, it was kind of a combination of both when they came back, but it, it quickly became uh, just no one because even my no my friends were like robbing my drug dealers and like, you know, we were getting into like, you know, very illegal activities together. Like they wouldn't even, <laughs> even hang out with me. Because uh, I was so insane, you know the cocaine. So you really... were the guy with the worst. You were the guy with the worst problem of all of oh, them. Did yeah. they did did they acknowledge that? And did you acknowledge that at the time? Yeah, but but I thought it was cute. You know, I was like, oh, this is like this is fun. You know, like I get to be that that guy. You know, I get to be the tortured artist. You know, my one of my inspirations was Alexander McQueen, and uh, I mean, super tortured genius, alcoholic, suicidal you know, depressive, creative type. You know, that's that. That's why I looked up to Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. You know, I wanted to go out like them. Yeah, I get it. I was uh, mortified to turn 21 because I knew what it would do to my cocaine use. I knew what it would do to my, my, my inevitable DWI situations in uh -huh. jail. And, you know, but yeah, I, I was dating this girl. I mean, <clears throat> she was no good for me. I was no good for her. And, you know, uh -huh. we were just, you know, Bonnie and Clyde getting into trouble wrecking cars, um, you know, in blackouts on Xanax, trying to go meet my Coke dealer, you know, just, just, just living a rock star life with, you know, no rock star to back it up. Rock star in your head, maybe, but it sounds like things were unraveling in your life very quickly around the age of, uh, what you say, 20, 21 at that point. No, I, I was, I was 19, you know, I was 19 at that time. You're 19. So all this crazy behavior is going on. You sound like you were understandably paranoid because of all all the, the different drugs you were doing, were you still feeling suicidal at that point? You know, I don't remember like intense feelings of suicidality until I got to my intervention. Uh-huh. Can you take us up to the point of that intervention? What was going on just prior to that? And what did that look like? So I'll talk about like, you know, the few months leading up to that. At that point, like I'd been to those two NA meetings we kind of talked about at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I was trying to like you know, stop using X, Y, and Z at X, Y, and Z times and, you know, trying to get sober on my own and, and do my own maintenance and recovery. And it was not working. In fact, it was making everything worse. And so I, I had stolen a bunch of pills from my friend's place. And, you know, I think each pill, you know, that was not prescribed to you was like a felony in the state of Texas. And so I had hundreds of pills right next to me in these Ziploc baggies. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't drank that night for some, well, because I had taken a bunch of opiates and, and, and uppers. Uh -huh. I knew if I drank, I would go into a blackout. And so I had all these pills and I was driving home and I had my brights on and I got pulled over because of my brights. For some reason, everything just clicked in me. And I reached over, I pulled the, the Ziploc bags, I put them under the the, the mat of my car. Um, I had a half smoked joint in my, my glove box and I had a bottle of water. Uh, the officer came up to, to my, my car door and, um, you know, he got my license registration. He asked me like, you know, have you been drinking tonight? And out of nowhere I go, uh, officer, I'm only 19. I'm not legally allowed to drink. And I let him smell my bottle of water and thank God it was a bottle of water. But I mean, 
I had no idea where the hell that came from. It, it you know, it must've been the Adderall that I had taken, you know, right before I got in the car <laughs> and, and that scared me shitless. Um, the jail was right, right down the block. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I got in the car one more time with, with that in my car, I would be in jail. That was, that was my last, my last chance without, you know, serious consequences. It, it scared me to my, to my core, but I couldn't stop drinking and drugging because I did not have a solution. We would typically go to Seattle to visit my dad's side of the family, uh, right before like in August and stuff. And, uh, you could get weed delivered at that time. I had taken all my opiates and benzos, uh, you know, I'd packed all my drugs up to go to Seattle with my family, I'd taken all the drugs in the car ride and at the airport in the night I got there. And so I was just going through withdrawals, like day one of being there of, of, of benzos and, um, of opiates. And so I just kind of hold myself up. My grandma's in the house, my aunt, my uncle, like, you know, my aunt recognized that I was on some sort of amphetamine and told my mother, cause she could see my, in my pupils. I mean, I looked like a nightmare mess. I looked like a fat meth head. And, um, I kind of hold myself up in that, in that room and just drank and did mm-hmm. amphetamines and, uh, and smoked a ridiculous amount of weed to get off the opiates and the benzos. And so I mm-hmm. came back to Houston, my parents like put an intervention together with my therapist because of, you know, everything that had been going on and also what had happened in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I weaned myself off of, of everything except the, the, the weed, um, because I, I knew my time was up. I knew it was, I knew the gig was up. I knew it was over. I had literally zero friends. Mm-hmm. All of my drug dealers would not even sell to me because they were convinced, you know, I was doing crazy stuff. And um, yeah, I had that intervention and I was in the therapist's office, the same therapist I was going to since I was in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. But uh, I started getting high when I was, you know, 16 and going to therapy. And that doesn't really work too well. She did all the arranging of the of the intervention. She put it all together. Quite literally, it was like, hey, we want to go to therapy with you. And I think maybe they had a conversation with my therapist. And that was the extent of the inf- <laughs> intervention. Uh, but but I knew in my heart that that it was it was going to happen. And I kind of wanted it to happen. And I kind of, you know, I, I let it happen. But I remember looking out the window of, you know, the, the office and being like, I want to jump out of here like like never before. But really, I had wanted to jump when I was in Dallas and when I was in eighth grade. So, you know, that's the third time. Right. I, I agreed to go to treatment for some mm-hmm. reason. By the grace of God, I got into the University of Houston Honors College while I was in my bottom because uh-huh. a friend of a friend had gotten me in. Um, it turns out they thought I was someone <laughs> that I actually wasn't. And that's how I got into the program. So God working in our lives and, uh, but they couldn't uh-huh. like re- retroactively take me out once they like found out who I like actually was. And yeah, so I was going to IOP at night and I would go to uh-huh. U of H classes during the day. And, uh, for the first two weeks I would eat lunch in my car by myself and smoke just a tiny bit of weed. Uh, because I didn't have any money to buy weed. So I had to space it out. And it was just like, it just stopped working basically. And then uh, eventually after, you know, I had to do all the P tests and rehab and they were starting to come back because they took two weeks to come back. And I was like, fuck, like I have to stop. And um, I threw away all my paraphernalia. I remember crying over the recycling bin in front of my house with all the bongs and pipes and stuff that I hadn't gotten rid of yet. Uh 
yeah, uh, Chris D was was the instructor, I guess, and I really liked him. He had 28 years of sobriety, yeah. December 26, 1986, when he got sober. He said that every day. And mm-hmm. I was like, this dude's cool. Like, he smoked weed with Willie Nelson back in the day. He had this long gray ponytail. He played music. And he had this light in his eyes. And I was like, I want what this dude has. They recommended a sponsor to me because he, quote unquote, liked clothes also. Um, little did I know that he sold vineyard vines and button downs and button ups. And I was, let's just say, the polar opposite at the time. <laughs> yeah. However, I did wear a lot of button ups and preppy stuff in, in my using and drinking days just to like fit in. I had a short haircut. Like I tried to look normal. Now I have the long hair because yeah. I don't really have too much to hide. And, you know, I've never, never been asked to buy weed from me like so many times in sobriety. Like people are just shocked when like, they're like, you don't smoke weed. I don't. I don't, man. Chris is a good friend from way, way back. I met Chris when I first came in. He's got about a little more than a year on me uh, in the program, but he's helped so, so many people over the years. And I know a big part of their program, the one he's involved in, is getting people involved in AA. Was that your experience when you were working that IOP program? Correct. Correct. And that was, I don't want to say mandatory, but that was like, you know, you have to go to meetings every night. They're not in rehab. You have to go to meetings. And um, I went to poker night on, on a Friday night. I remember sitting in the back of that church that was off Washington Avenue, you know, in those metal chairs in the back, back, not, I don't remember anything from the meeting, but um, I went to a meeting at noon on Saturday and that became a home group of mine for a few years. And uh, I remember uh, meeting a couple of guys and I, and you know, my friends who I'm still friends with from that, that meeting, they first saw me at, they were like, this dude is a mess, <laughs> you know? And, and so it's good to hear, you know, what I was like at my second AME. And then on that Sunday, I, I went over to my buddy's house and, uh, we were vaping weed and I was drinking stale Schweppes and, and, and gin, and I could not get enough stale uh-huh. Schweppes and gin and vaped weed down into my system to make me feel anything anymore. It had totally stopped working. And it scared the shit out of me. I was like, my solution no uh-huh. longer works like at all, at all. And I have a head full of AA, uh, even though it just been two meetings that totally destroyed my drinking. And that Sunday night is when I threw away all of my paraphernalia. And that Monday I probably had IOP and I committed to, to trying it out. And, um, I got that sponsor. I worked all 12 steps with him within, you know, seven months. I think I did it pretty quickly. Um, cause I was just, I was just ready. I was so ready. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, I started sponsoring guys. I got my first sponsee. I got a phone call from this guy right outside of when I was walking the Holy name on a Sunday night, I was on step uh-huh. seven, I think, you know, uh-huh. he asked me to be a sponsor. I called my sponsor, I asked my sponsor if I could sponsor him. He said, yes. And so I started sponsoring this guy who was a ex gang member from the projects in North Houston. Uh And he was like 300 pounds and I was like 150 pounds. And he called me hippie P (laughs) and he would bring his pistol into the meetings because he didn't feel safe without it. And we got to the point, you know, after a few meetings, I'm like, dude, leave it in your car. You're fine in the AA meeting. And, um, you know, that was my first experience with a sponsee. And I had had a spiritual experience working my steps, particularly, you know, three, four or five. Mm -hmm. And then I had a whole other spiritual experience taking him through the steps. And yeah, that's kind of like what, you know, early AA program looked like in my life. 
That's amazing. Well, it's, it's such a great story that leads you all the way into AA. Some of the players that you're talking about, especially Chris and some of the other, the, some of the meetings that you've talked about, these are particularly strong people and meetings that I can't think of better people or meetings to be associated with early on in a difficult sobriety. Yes. So the fact that you were able to stick around and stop the weed. And so you've been sober seven years. You count the, the last toke on that joint as your sobriety date or what do you count as your actual sobriety date? Well, I guess it was that Monday, you know, because, because, you know, I think I got stoned and drunk on that. Well, I didn't even get stoned and drunk, but I used and I drank on that Sunday. And, uh, and I think that Monday was September 3rd. Uh-huh. That's wild. So in looking back over the, uh, the last seven years, early on in our discussion, you were talking about some of the gifts that have been inherent in your sobriety over the last couple of years, being able to pursue your dream, move to a place that you had some apprehension about to meeting that don't feel quite as comfortable, but now things are starting to turn around for you in that regard. What are some of the other gifts that have occurred to you within the last seven years that probably would not have happened had you continued to drink and use drugs? Oh, yeah. I mean, like everything in my life, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew the answer to that one, of course. <laughs> you know, like I have real friends in many places now. Uh -huh. um, I have a relationship with my higher power that I get in contact with every morning that gives me strength to deal with the insanity of life. And life has been quite insane for all of us in the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, I have a purpose, uh, which is to help other alcoholics. Mm -hmm. You know, that works when everything else fails, you know, as as contrived and, you know, as literal that that is in our literature. I mean, that is really true to me and and i go through waves in my sobriety when like um when i have those realizations so, like that's really like at the end of the day what i'm here to do and it's funny because the more and mm -hmm. more i reach out to newcomers the more of service and like the more i try and help people the more good shit happens in my life which then takes me out of being of service and then i get miserable doing all that great stuff happening and then i get back into it and it's like been this jump between the two and like my goal is to like kind of like maintain both uh, I have a career, um, you know, I'm a full-time artist, which is like mm -hmm. an impossible thing. Like it's impossible to get sober. It's impossible to stay sober. It's impossible to be an artist who like sells art and exhibits art in New York or anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, like I work really, really hard every single day. Um, but mm -hmm. it's really crazy that like the majority of things just, come to me and just God just puts them in my life. And I don't know how else to describe it than that, but, uh, but that's really what it is. And, um, God, you know, just kind of pushes away the opportunities that are not meant to be at that time. And it's hard for me to accept. It is. And I think it is for, for uh, you know, for all of us. One of the greatest gifts of sobriety, I think, for for me and, and maybe for you is that we're willing to be and are grateful to be available to others. And I know it's that way. Just about the time I'm thinking that starting to feel sorry for myself or something's going on that I'm thinking, geez, I wish I was running the show. God will put somebody or something in my life. It's kind of like what you were talking about that I have to deal with. And in the dealing with it, it so takes me out of the frame of mind that I was in before that once I'm dealing with whatever it is, I can't remember what it was that was really bugging me previously. 
you know, a lot of that has to do with, with remaining available and there for other men and, and women in the program. So sounds like you've really built a nice life of sobriety around yourself. Yes. And, um, I owe that, you know, majority to the, the guys that showed me the way in Houston AA mm-hmm. and the old timers, like, you know, you kind of uh-huh. talked about and, um, one, one good thing, you know, you kind of just alluded to it is like the benefits of like frying our brains, with drugs and alcohol is like my short term memory is like not too great. So uh-huh. also it's because I'm so sensitive that I'm so hyper present in whatever's going on right now or what I think is going to happen. Uh-huh. And so like, it's really hard for me to like, remember, you know, what happened, like, what did I do for my, my, my last birthday or my last sobriety birthday? It's very difficult for me to remember the physical pain I was in, especially as it relates to everything I've been dealing with lately. And like, sometimes I try and think about that and it's like, I I just, I have no recollection of like what it, what it actually was. And um, I don't know, it's just this weird thing that, that, that I kind of deal with. Maybe I'm just so selfish that I don't, (laughs) I don't process things in my memory that way. Looking at you from my perspective, I see you as a very unselfish individual. Sounds to me though, like during that time in which you were experiencing all of that physical pain with your mouth, that it's truly amazing that given the level of pain that you were talking about, that you did not slip. How did you manage that whenever the pain was getting so bad that you needed relief? What did you do? I'm unfortunately still going through it. It's, you know, it's coming up on nine months of this. Um, For the first four months, I just couldn't eat on the left side of my mouth. And, you know, food had become like a way of changing the way I felt and, you know, somewhat of an issue. And so like, that was like, okay, now that's taken away from me. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was really difficult to deal with. And and then about four months ago, everything just got worse. And, and I was up to 20 Tylenol a day, plus hydrocodone, plus another non-narcotic anti-inflammatory. And the pain was still so severe that I couldn't do anything. I mean, of course, relying on AA, relying on God, but like, you know, I started catching resentment against God because I'm like, I'm ready for you to take me out of this. And I recently listened to something the preacher was talking about asking God to like come into the pain with you or come into the dark situation with you rather than just asking him to take you out of it. So that's been a recent version of the third step that I've been trying to incorporate. That's cool. And, um, you know, of course, going to meetings, but, you know, seeking a lot of outside help, like I'm going to hypnosis therapy for chronic pain. You know, I'm in regular therapy now because before the mouth issue, I developed severe panic attacks. And like, I basically became non-functional a year ago Mm -hmm. at six years of sobriety because of panic attacks, Um, living in New York, COVID, you know, the whole shebang. And then I got over that and then the mouth situation kind of presented itself. So um, going to a lot of naturopathic, like homeopathic, like, you know, acupuncture, like seeking a lot of outside help and a lot of like opinions from other people. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, I, I only had to do the opiates for, I had a surgery and I had to do opiates for about a week and a half after that. And, um, you know, have someone else manage the pain meds and have my girlfriend manage yeah, them yeah. And, you know, they're just not as fun when you're actually like in pain um, and taken as prescribed. Uh, there was part of me that really liked them, you know, that wanted to keep it going, but uh, yeah, it's just not it's just not worth it. And it and it got to the point where it wasn't even helping the pain. Yeah, uh, and chronic opiate use can actually make like pain worse over time. Yeah, it can, and all the other problems associated with it. With us. 
Yeah. So you're still dealing with it, but you feel like maybe you've passed the worst of it. Yes. We're over the hump, but you know, it's, it's tough, man. It just, it just wears me down sometimes. It's just, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a day I have to spend like, you know, an hour and a half a day doing like different rinses and like all these things for yeah, my, for yeah, my yeah. health. But anyway, I can, I can walk, I can talk, I can go to the gym. I can kind of eat most things. Um, it just it just hurts sometimes. That nerve pain is really really tough. I have a lozenge in right now that's you know helping, so that might be some weird sounds, but uh, just just part of what I got to do right now. So, well, I am so thankful that you've been able to do this. I mean, given the, the the pain that you're under and the situation that you're in, for you to be able to come and take this time to share with me. You know, from deep down, and you and I have known each other for uh, probably since you first came in, but having the opportunity to sit down with you for an hour and 20 minutes and share deeply what was going on in your life, what's going on in your life right now, it, it's such a blessing to me to get to know you better as a result of doing this. And I really, I do appreciate it. I love you and I, I wish only the best for you and certainly would like to see you get past this thing with your mouth so you can, uh, you know, move on to greater and better things. Thank you, man. I love you too. And, it, you know, it's always a good meeting if Howard is greeting you at the door. So, uh, well, I, I appreciate that. It means a lot to me. See you, Howard. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Think of it as a little AA service that spreads the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience. It's yet another helping hand that we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.